Hi, I'm Will Ross. Once again, my co-host Devin Scott was on vacation when I recorded this intro, but you'll be hearing him in a few seconds. Today we brought in Dan Sallet, the director of the new film 14, which is currently in digital release across North America. We brought Dan on to have a conversation about his film's small-budget, discontinuous shooting schedule that stretched over two years. And we did, but the conversation wound up going in a lot of interesting directions, especially talking about how personality and anxiety influence the kind of art we make and how we make it. It's a really nice conversation, so let's get into it. Welcome to Film Formally! Okay, so today we're here talking to Dan Sallett, a film critic and a film director and a liker of films, I think I'm right in saying that, whose micro-budgeted, independently produced movies investigate the quiet dysfunctions of families and friendships. Hi, Dan. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So Dan's new film is 14, and it's been distributed digitally by Grasshopper Film in partnership with movie theaters throughout North America a in-person, in-cinema release was obviously impossible in light of the current pandemic. The movie is centered on the long and increasingly frayed friendship of two friends who have known each other since middle school, one of whom is stable, dependable, and the other of whom often struggles to avoid destructive downward spirals. For our discussion today, we're going to focus on an aspect of the film's production that probably would not have happened if it was made within the industry, with industry backing and money and all of the apparatus of that. It was filmed in a really discontinuous fashion. Dan, can you talk to us about that discontinuous approach? The discontinuity was, first of all, a practical thing. I always shot movies, you know, all in one go, usually like three weeks for a low budget film. But this time, I was not at all sure that I could get enough vacation time for pre-production and production. And so I was looking for an idea that could be shot in pieces without a harm to the, to the actual footage. So that was like really, really early in the whole creative process, that practical difficulty reared its head and, and shaped everything else. The story from that, after that, came second to the idea of not having enough vacation time from my day job. But it was an opportunity because you know how low-budget films tend to be. You're better off if you could do it in like one location with two actors. The further you get from that, the more difficult it is. So here's a chance to have a completely different kind of story and narrative. So it's, it's nice, but it's practical in origin. I was peeking through some of your earlier films in the credits for when and where they were filmed. And The Unspeakable Act, it mentions that it was shot in April and June 2011. And for the record, 14, it says, was filmed in March, June, and October 2017, April, May, and August 2018. But The Unspeakable Act, there were there were two months separated by May in there. Um, yeah. Was that like just pickups or... No, the, the, the actual, uh, we, we, I knew that there was going to be uh, one time lapse in the movie and there was going to be one exterior exactly in that time lapse. And so I just was thinking ahead and thought I'd try to get something that still could look a little wintry. As it happened, more went on than just a change of the seasons there. It was a completely different camera and a completely different cinematographer. 
different resolution to the image, but it, it kind of worked to make it look like a different time. That was like one particular problem I was trying to address, whereas 14 was built around the discontinuity. And, you know, those six, you know, times, which are really five times, I think April and May bled into each other in 2018. That was part of the script. And it was intended that they should be jumped. The actors were encouraged to gain weight, lose weight, uh, cut their hair, grow their hair. One thing I really picked up on when watching the film was that the sense that time was passing in the film's production was apparent pretty early on. But the sense that time was passing in the diegetic world of the film uh, was sometimes less clear. It almost felt like the film the film was deliberately trying to uh, elide the passage in some ways, but not others. Um, I, I take it that was that was almost certainly a conscious decision, but I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, you know, as I often do, I was thinking of Maurice Pila, and I thought to myself, this, this continuous shoot is my chance. Finally, I, you know, spent a lot of my life trying to understand Pila, and I felt like not only do I feel like I understand them, like in my old age, but also felt as if this was a chance to try to do some of the things the, the way he does them. And it, it, it's not just time, but time is the most obvious thing. When you see a Maurice Pila movie, he cuts without giving you clues. Uh, the contrasts are textural mostly, and then eventually they, they become narrative. That was built into the project all along, that, that these jumps would be um, in the style of, of Yusupila. I actually watched um, his film To Our Love. One thing that really struck me is a commonality between this film or between 14 and To Our Love was that sense that every time there was a cut, you were left guessing as yeah. to how much time had passed. And then you're slowly parsed out the information, right? Like about halfway through, I'd say on average about in, in 14, about halfway through the scenes is about how far I'd get before I'd be able to nail down how much time has elapsed, right? Has it been, what had happened? Yeah. Or like, has it been two days? Has it been six months? Has it been in periods of years sometimes go by in yeah. one twenty-fourth of a second in that film? Yeah. Uh, so, so there was this guessing game that I really enjoyed. Did you find yourself kind of consciously knowing that you were going to play with that audience and sense of diegetic time? It's it's very conceptual, of course, and it was in the script. It was in my original concept, and it was in the script. Play is an interesting, you know, all, really all you did in the moment or in the editing room, all you did was like check up on your idea. This was something that was written and planned. And I. I tend, even if I'm not doing anything fancy, to be a planner. So it's uh, it's um, hopefully surprising only to the audience, not not to me, because I had the whole thing storyboarded, written everything long before shot lists, the works. The because uh, the relationship to me between the temporal, the real time timeline of the shooting of the film and the fictional timeline is interesting to me because the film's jumping ahead in time inside the film is to me less kind of unusual because plenty of films take place over the mm -hmm. course of years. I mean, yeah. take a biopic, the combination of that with the, you know, extended production cycle really creates this interesting alchemy. Um, to you, was the extended production cycle um, more central to your concept than the extended diegetic time or were those two just intertwined and inseparable and you could not have made one without the other? It's more the latter, but it was their practical issues crept in. As I mentioned before, it started with a practical need. I couldn't shoot all at once. At least I couldn't do it in the manner to which I'd become accustomed. And 
I the extended shoot was necessary because of my work situation. Then I wrote a script around that idea, and the script had nine separate time periods. And then there was a compromise because I didn't want to have nine separate shoots. I, I planned four. I wound up with five. Some of the time jumps were just your typical time jumps you'll see in any movie that was shot in one stretch where you're faking it. But there's a few of them that include other changes, seasonal changes, changes in haircuts. One of my actors really obliged me and lost a huge amount of weight between his two appearances in the movie. Um, so crazy counterfactual question. You get carte blanche, right? And you can make this film in as much or as little time as you want. Would you choose to make it over the course of five or six years or however long the story takes place? Yeah. Or would you actually choose to make it in a shorter time? You know, I might not have done it differently, but this is purely a matter of like anxiety. You know, when Richard Linklater <laughs> did Boyhood, he probably was thinking, oh, well, I'm making other movies. This is the whole concept here. If I die or somebody dies, that's just what, that's just what we're doing. But I'm not so cool as Richard Linklater. And I think I, I think I probably, given the opportunity to shoot this script exactly as I wrote it, like with nine time periods spread out over a 10-year period, I think I would have declined politely um, just because I felt like there's only so much that, that I could take without collapsing into a ball of anxiety. I <laughs> you, you talk also about both the anxiety of the shoot and how precise you try to be. Like, you know, it's you not only plan the exact shots and dialogue, but you have a cutting plan for when in each part of the dialogue you will cut to one of the shots. And that's that's like that kind of emphasis on planning. You know, you hear about that possibly most famously with Hitchcock or, or someone like Bunuel who had very different resources but did have compact shoots. Right. Mm -hmm. they, they shot all at once. So it strikes me that shooting so discontinuously is unusual. And so I can understand the anxiety. And the other interesting thing about that to me is that, for example, with Boyhood, one of Linklater's big ideas with that was that he would change, shift the story as needs be as he went along. And there must have been some consideration with you, um, not necessarily someone dying, but like what if someone becomes unavailable or something radically changes. Did you have escape hatches in mind? <laughs> like thinking like, okay, if this happens, I can go this route or? No, I really didn't. I couldn't afford to with this particular script. There was no, I the idea of like, oh, well, we lost this character. Let's like finish the film without them, which like, many a great director has approached, has done that sort of thing and bragged about it later and enjoyed it. It is not me. I wanted the film to be the way it was written. And whenever you start any movie, you're just making a fate bet and more of a fate bet if you're stretching it out over a period of time. If you lose, you lose the film. Um, but I think that, like, you know, Hitchcock, I, I feel like I understand Hitchcock's anxiety. I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Hitchcock in any way other than the anxiety, but there's no doubt in my mind that he also has an anxious personality and he's trying to counteract it. And when he would say in interviews, the shooting is the easy part, the film's all done, I just execute this plan. I don't believe it, but I understand the impulse behind it. I understand why he's saying it. I understand the goal, the emotional goal, which is to pretend that it's over and that there's nothing at stake. And I have a little bit of that in me too. It's, it's, 
in theory, not the greatest creative orientation. In theory, it, it seems like it would uh, open you up to a lack of spontaneity, missed opportunities when something is in your way. And so maybe to the extent that you can handle it emotionally, you try to leave yourself a little of freedom to, to go with, you know, what might happen. Um, but it, it, it just kind of comes down to it sometimes where it's your emotional well-being versus whatever kind of highfalutin theory you might have about what the best way is to shoot. When push comes to shove, I need not to have an emotional breakdown over a period of an 18 month shoot or, or a three week shoot. That's hard enough. That's really hard enough. I find personally the thing that scares me most about a long shoot is actually like myself in a weird way because I'm a very fickle person in mm -hmm. creative reasons. I think about every six months I, I get tired of whatever I was doing and then do something totally different, right? Like if you, if you watch any two of the films me and Will directed together, like two years we, we like almost don't resemble the previous filmmakers uh -huh. and i think that's something i'm very proud of but also something i'm very self-conscious of and if i was making something that took you know over a year to make i would be constantly scared of like 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 am i the same person like like is this film gonna end up looking like a different filmmaker than it started and is that a bad thing did that ever did that kind of thought of like your own creative growth ever like inform or either i understand you but only in a, an academic sense uh, you know, I, I had a therapist once who uh, told me about the difference between uh, obsessive compulsive and hysteric personality. I believe what this therapist was saying was an obsessive compulsive personality um, tries to bind their anxiety with every, anything they can, with repetition, with ritual. Uh, a hysteric personality, for whatever reason, has that uh, anxiety unbound and free floating and likely to crystallize in different places. So huh. those are two different kind of filmmakers right there. And I'll tell you, I would rather for purposes of filmmaking, I'd rather be the hysterical personality. It's so much easier to, to be in the moment. If you treat it like a challenge, if you treat life like a challenge, like, okay, what happens? Can I go with it? You know, that would be nice. That would be interesting. I don't know if I would have chosen to be the kind of filmmaker that wants to pretend that the whole movie is basically finished and that all I have to do is execute it the way that Hitchcock used to say. And I don't necessarily believe it, but I try to convince myself of that every stage of the way, including starting with when I start to revise drafts right up until the final editing. I don't know if I'd have chosen it. But you don't get to choose your personality, or you know, I am. If you get to choose your personality, it's it's a it's a it's a level I haven't unlocked yet. I was about to go into a tangent about psychopaths, but that's okay. <laughs> don't deprive us of that. Yeah. I, I, I'll twist it a bit into art. Um, so the, uh -huh. I, I think um, where I see a lot of um, artists, I think, lose their way is when they almost treat that sort of personality thing as almost a suit of clothes they can try on. I have to talk my students out of this a lot. I'm going to try a film noir, so therefore yeah. Venetians, you know, and um, instead of kind of organically looking inward or trusting their instincts a little as, as to the creative methods they use. It's, it's this almost prescriptive thing like X means Y versus, hey, what does this feel like? Man's got to know his limitations, as Dirty Harry said.
Remember the the first the first two Dirty Harry films. The first one was conservative, and the second one was liberal, and trying really hard not to be conservative. And so the, the really, I've only seen the first one. I have fir- to admit, the first one. Well, the first. You don't, I don't think you really need to keep seeing them. The first one is an amazing movie, but it's truly conservative in a number of ways. I mean, and Siegel was a liberal, but the, he said, you know, the way he described, wh- explained why he did that film is he said, most of the cops I know are conservative. It's, it's a good profession that makes you conservative. It was an interesting explanation that this, like, famous Hollywood liberal should do this film that not only uh, has conservative characters, but enacts the conservative uh, fear and fantasy about what could go wrong with the world. There's this constant tension, I think, between precision that we associate with mastery in art in general and the spontaneity that we associate with a really uh, uh, whatever words you want to use gripping emotionally and it strikes me that like you 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 are very careful to to give your dialogue a highly spontaneous sense of flow are there other elements other than that dialogue where you're thinking ahead of time okay i can't allow this to feel planned or schematic or anything like that or is it is that just something that you don't worry about it's a tough question and um i think that i have had different responses from people with different movies about whether or not spontaneity seemed to happen or not um I, I think that, you know, there are, certain, there are certain moments in every movie where you know that, you know, something you need to take reality into account. You need to go with something about reality. Or your actor needs to deal with the contradiction that they're trying to say something that was on a piece of paper and yet make it sound like they just thought of it. And you know those things are true. I haven't always like I haven't always put a really high premium on spontaneity. Um, sometimes I kind of like the, the the structure showing up. I think that fourteen, maybe more than other films, doesn't show too much of that uh, abstract quality of of the planning. And I think it's just because of the actors. To tell you the truth, to some extent, you compare something like. You know, 14 to one of my earlier movies, like maybe All the Ships at Sea or something, which is a very written movie. Um, it just happens that there's like one or two actors in the new one that have like a different, uh, have, have a, an agenda of their own and, and actually change the way the movie feels. I don't think I'm like committed to get this kind of Altman like, you know, entropy, but uh, it's really interesting to see it happen sometimes and to like try to figure out who on set is the culprit. Uh, one phrase you used um, a while back that I read that I really stuck with me was the idea of documentary invading fiction. Mm. This idea that um, almost you're setting up the framework, the fictional framework through which people can bring their own uh, happenstance and experience to it. This is Andre Bazin, and this is like a great old tradition of filmmaking kind of idea that you, you're turning a camera on, you're going to be documenting something and you could fight that, but it's not really natural to fight it a hundred percent. It's much more natural to accept the fact that you're photographing something and that it's going to have the texture of reality to some extent. Um, but, the, but fiction is, is built in, even if you don't have a story, 
that, that's film almost to me. I, I, I think that's like the essence of it. Mostly I kind of like, because of the person I am, I mostly like think about that in the planning stage, in the casting stage, especially like you really, you know, I used to, when I started making movies and I didn't really know what I was doing, I kind of had this idea that actors were these infinitely malleable instruments that could do whatever you wanted them to do. And, you know, that was kind of knocked out of me pretty quickly. But, you know, after a while you start, instead of trying to bend an actor who doesn't want to bend, which I've done, which is stupid and hurtful, you could spend you could spend a lot of time in the casting and then accept the documentary quality that the casting has given you, or you could write a film for somebody where you know a little bit about them. In which case, the casting is kind of done before you even write the script. Sometimes that's even better. The documentary aspect of film just happens when you turn the camera on. The question is just how much you want to fight it. It's really kind of fun not to fight it. It's really kind of fun to like use what's there use what happens without you trying yeah and i think this applies too to not just the actors and the performances but to just the world of, that you're kind of simultaneously building and capturing yeah unawares right like there is that very long take outside of the train station the uh you have the very long take outside the katona station and um i think part of me i'm just in a big james benning face right now i was just loving though um seeing the world go by in the background of this film and then that kind of authenticity informs the rest of the proceedings. Um, and to me, like that's like documentary, even like a security cam footage <laughs> invading the middle of the film. And um, I think it applies to every element we use. And uh, one What's great that? example was the scene with the daughter too. Uh-huh. Yeah, for sure. Who you can't, you don't want to direct anybody who's five years old in, with too much, you know, obsessive compulsive controlling stuff. Uh, the Katona scene is like, really conceived with a little bit of fiction invading a documentary. And it really feels like a documentary. I was like loving it. You see the train pull in. It's a commuter town. You see people getting off. You see people getting in the passenger seat of cars that are waiting for them. Their spouse is there to pick them up. And then Callie makes her appearance. I told her, like, try to let two-thirds of the crowd from the train, like, escape before you come up. And she makes her appearance and you recognize her, or I do anyway, being so attuned to Tally as I am. And the camera starts to tr follow her as she, as she appears. So to keep her in center frame. So that's like, that's like to me, a kind of a shift into fiction. And I kind of was crying a little bit when the first time the camera like picked her out. I'm looking at, I'm looking at Christmas scene as like viewfinder and like watching this static shot change in a second to the narrative was your cinematographer also operating the camera at that moment because i would be the, i would be so scared at that point uh, <laughs> it wasn't one train yeah. you know we positioned ourselves yeah. for rush hour and i think we did it like four or five times we knew the train schedule i don't remember which one i we finally wound up using but um it wasn't like you know you lose it if you don't get it once i think trains are such a good example of this push-pull yeah. when you're filmmaking between that documentary element and the uh, the the planning, the, the structure that you have to put into making anything. I mean, I'm thinking about uh, Devin and I made a short a couple of years ago where we had to film a sky train at night and 
we just had to film it and we we just had to get it in time and we turned on the camera thinking we had a few left to go (laughs) and thinking we had scheduled it well and of course it was the last sky train so we ended up Uh, two in the morning (laughs) we ended up just matting it in in post and it's seamless and you can't tell thank goodness and that's why independent filmmakers should never move their cameras that's a scary story for an obsessive compulsive type to hear, you know. I knew the schedule of the trains though and, and knew exactly like when they were how Yeah, well that's very nice for you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> we also had the opposite problem where this is this is my favorite shot in the whole film actually, is through Utter Happenstance where um, there's a train line that just cuts through East Vancouver, could completely cuts you off. And um, we got we the whole production literally got stopped waiting for this incredibly long 20 minute long train so we just filmed it and had that and our lead actor stand in front of the train his name is vlad stand in front of the train uh and it ended up being the longest shot in the film and it was my favorite part of the whole film it was uh that was like a true documentary of the location invading our movie and that's great and it sounds great you know and that's but that's the sort of thing that i'd like i don't i don't like try to set things up for stuff like that to happen i try to make them not happen there's one moment in, I know Devin hasn't. Dan, have you seen an elephant sitting still? Yeah, I have. Do you remember the climax, the, the big climactic shot, how it begins with a train rushing no. by? At this moment, oh, there's, it's, it's that, I'm sure you remember the shot, though. It's the endless climax shot. And uh, it begins pointed one way, and a train crosses, uh, and the, it motivates the camera's pan. And so the camera just pans 180 degrees, and instantly, and because the light is fading throughout the entire shot, you instantly realize, oh, this, they could only do this once per day. Uh-huh. And they're, and they're truthfully, I mean, you, you could probably make some sort of reading or, I mean, the trains are relevant to that film metaphorically, but truthfully, it really seems like the only reason to start the take with a train was to say, folks, we only got one take of this per day. <laughs> that, that has power though. You know what the audience, yeah. what the audience knows has power. Yeah, if you're a trapeze artist filmmaker, which I'm not, then like you should absolutely do that sort of thing. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, that's like um, with like long takes and stuff. Uh, any 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 shot that's longer than like a minute, the audience immediately starts thinking, "Who's going to screw this up?" Right? And you have that built-in tension to the formal elements behind its making, and that always fascinates me because I, I I beat this drum a lot, but I think that the divide between the metatextual tension or elements of any film and the story elements, the diegetic elements, is a lot more porous and more blurry than we give it credit for absolutely sometimes that's really powerful when you like feel like you're being directed one way and you're directed another and that was like not unrelated to the shot that you mentioned the katona train shot because i feel like this convulsion when all of a sudden pally is picked out by the camera and it's a subtlest little thing formally but to me it's this convulsion of like going from a, a pure documentary to to a narrative that has already you know, been established. I, I recently rewatched um, Jacques Rivette's La Belle Noiseuse, mm-hmm. and um, it was it was comfort viewing in my household. And <laughs> um, there's a shot right in the middle of the film where it's just I forget the figurative artist they got to do it. It's just a, basically a documentary plopped in right to the middle of this film of a hand drawing, and that's a lot of the film. But there's one particular shot that's 11 minutes long oh, of a hand really? drawing, and this immediately brought that to mind because I'm like, this is just a almost a procedural depiction of a moment mm-hmm. in time of undirected motion happening because that that's an artist actually painting there uh-huh. and it's almost like i'm being taken out of this story to just kind of literally smell the roses and appreciate this moment in time well that tradition that rivette kind of signed up for to an extent and which 
Bazan did the initial theory for, uh, you know, that tradition was where we got our, va- anybody who values the documentary aspect of, of filmmaking and of doing fiction, you know, it comes out of that tradition. Before that, there was like a, a much greater emphasis on uh, what you create, you know, and, much, and the, this kind of sense that, you know, cutting was important because it was, you know, what you do, what you can do in film, but you can't do in any other art form. And it took this kind of Bazinian revolution to say, you know, you, sitting there for 11 minutes and watching something unfold is to also cinema and, as a matter of fact, maybe closer to the essence of what's going on with a camera. I, this, this kind of reminds me of, to just wind on down the trail here, uh, Eisenstein believing that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was, I, I think the... This might this there's a chance this is apocryphal, but I think the quote is that he thought it was the greatest film of all time. <laughs> and what I think he meant and, and the way he discussed it was that it was the greatest thing that ever happened to film because uh-huh. suddenly there were there were zero limitations to the generative imagery that you could assign to any given uh-huh. film, right? You could uh-huh. literally compose anything. You you weren't bound by photography. You weren't bound by stillness. It was just. It, you could literally any imagery that you could draw uh-huh. or paint, you could put in motion. And I, I, I think about that a lot and how he I, I believe he wound up being somewhat disillusioned by, yeah. <laughs> by that tradition and, and how limited animation wound up being outside that one part of Fantasia. Well, as, a, the, do that. as a theorist, he doesn't have to be disillusioned with the idea of it, but it is really I, it's kind of more like the way Eisenstein thinks than the, than the way that Bazan and his disciples think, and it is a really different approach. This idea of creating everything from scratch and the giddiness of that, that is actually really put it a, a pretty the, – the Bazinian school doesn't even aspire to that. They, the limitations of the camera, if you want to call them limitations, are part of their aesthetic. This brings up, I, I, I just had this thought. We've been talking a fair amount, Dan, about how you prefer to plan heavily and, and it's partly a product of your anxiety. And we've kind of uh, turned a corner a little bit to talking about ha- uh, uh, the thrill of uh, creating those structures around the unplanned elements and how much you enjoy that. But could you see yourself, I mean, obviously, if you want to do this generally, you have to start a lot earlier. But could you see yourself with any fondness uh, making an animated film like if you like you know if you could go back start your career over and like go into animation for example and make that a feasible mm-hmm. thing do you think that would be a fit to your personality to direct animation or does that feel like on the one hand i could imagine like not having anything except what you do be happening to be relieving anxiety on the other hand it just feels so different to me and i don't I, I, I'm not drawn to it. The, the photographic aspect of film was really like very close to what made it be the thing that drew me, you know. And I'm not saying that there's you know, the fact that there's no photography in animation doesn't mean that the photographic aspect is completely missing by illusion. Allu- allu- it, it is kind of there in a way. Um, and I'm not saying I don't like some animated films, but it's like too a bridge too far for me in terms of the 
a creative move away from like what I always identified as being movie. For me, it's the editing part where I'm a horrible editor. I'm the worst. He's not. Because <laughs> when I'm given unlimited choices, I make no choice. <laughs> and with animation, it's unlimited possibilities, which means I, I, I love like, this is why I love documentary, shooting documentaries is because I have like two options and I need to choose the best one of those two. Uh-huh. Well, again, again, we're talking two different things here. We're talking personality and how you deal with anxiety and you're talking creativity <laughs> And those can be separable and they they don't always line up perfectly. But yeah, like I think that the fact that film is like uh, basically photography and basically feels like a recreation of reality, the design would say is a recreation of reality. That's like part of what draws one, what draws a lot of filmmakers to it. So that's a different issue from how anxious or wild we might be when we come up with a camera in our hands. So much of the appeal for film is, for me, the moment when something entirely mundane, like a space that you've seen a thousand times, having a camera put in a certain place at a certain time of day, transforming it into something beautiful, or having somebody walk across the kitchen at a 45 degree angle instead of a 60 degree angle, an entirely mundane act because of where the camera's been placed Uh and what the film around it is suddenly turns into this euphoric moment that not pulling a rabbit out of a hat element. Yeah. There's always two things too. There's always the documentation and there's always something you stuck in there that is, you could call it aesthetic, you can call it narrative, but they're, they're always both there. You know, whenever you're doing anything with a story at the, at the very least, and you really feel it when you're doing like fiction, especially you feel the fusion of like making something up and then pretending that you're just documenting something. My experience with that fusion is actually usually from the opposite end of that looking glass where um, I tend to work more often shooting documentaries that then almost smuggle in fiction elements. Uh-huh. <laughs> like especially my work with Sophie, who is a previous guest. When I shoot with her, it's usually called a documentary, but we so much is fabulistic in the in those films uh-huh. where it's like we're, we're the audience's understanding of what they're watching is that they think it's a documentary, but we're kind of fooling them into thinking that these horrendously fictional moments uh-huh. are actually documentary. And I, I love that. That's 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 wonderful. Almost in, in, in the case of this film, it's the way it's shot almost feels like the inverse of that, where it's it, it looks and feels like a fictional film, but there's elements that feel like they could be straight out of documentary realism. I think that, I mean, people have made a, you know, a lot of theorists have talked about fiction documentary as if you can't really separate them. You can't really separate them, but I think there's like an intentional, an intentionality that is different. Like, there are certain questions that would never come up if you announce that something is a fiction that do come up if you announce that it's a documentary. You know, if you announce it's a documentary and then you, like, you know, make somebody look like they're uh, a nice person mm-hmm. when they're a murderer or vice versa or something, you you have some responsibility. I think a lot of it is that contract with the audience idea of yeah. genre, which I tend to buy into quite a bit. Where it's if, if your contract is, we're showing you fact, we're showing you nonfiction, the audience will receive things differently um, mm-hmm. than the inverse. And sometimes it'll cause them to rebel. <laughs> or if you say to somebody, yeah. I'm telling you something true, I'm telling you something about the world, you, you have kind of created a contract. If you don't say it, then you're not necessarily a liar. But you do have a certain how how you manage that relationship between with a commitment to 
representing reality or not is kind of the only difference between documentary and fiction that I really feel. The only thing to me that separates documentary from other genres is that it's me the only genre where it's generic constraints or expectations are mostly epistemological. Yeah. <laughs> where it's, you know, uh, Westerns, you have a setting, you have a mm-hmm. archetypes, documentary, it's, you're getting truth or whatever. You know, I've, a, I've mixed feelings about that. When I was um, uh, casting one of my movies in the 90s, one of my actresses was in a film called Dade Town, which I don't think is talked about too much. The filmmaker died right after home, but it completely looked like a documentary. And then they just kind of pull it out at the end. They, they pull the rug out front of your feet and you know, the, the, everyone kind of smiles at the camera as they kind of reveal they've been pranking you for 90 minutes. <laughs> and it's like now there we have a film that's like right or wrong it was like fooling with that contract that fooling with that understanding you know with the audience definitely the difference between you and devin devin would appreciate the prank yeah no. I'm, I'm, I'm i feel like i'm a prankster first filmmaker second <laughs> I, i'm not i'm yeah. not anti-prank but but there's there's, <laughs> there's a sense in which like if you, when you pull a rug out from somebody you kind of want to make sure that where they land is as interesting as where they thought they were. Yeah. I got to write that on my wall somewhere. That's great. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I wish we were recording this. <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is, this is still just spitballing off of what we've been talking about, but speaking about that, like epistemological contract, something like Sweetgrass and to an extent Leviathan by Lucien Casting Taylor, mm-hmm. where Sweetgrass, I'm assuming you guys have both seen it. Yeah. yeah. I'm, 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 I'm about to spoil Sweetgrass, which is actually a movie <laughs> you can spoil. But the ending of Sweetgrass, <laughs> it's, it's just a movie about herding sheep over a long distance. <laughs> and at the end, I mean, the short version is that the ending title card comes up and it says, this was the last time this particular herding route was ever done. That the, Like, this was just mm. the last time it happened, what you just mm. saw. Uh, which just completely recontextualizes the movie you've already seen. And what's mm. interesting about that to me is that it calls into question our assumptions about what kind of epistemological contract we're entering into when we start up a documentary. If we walk into Sweetgrass and see that documentary tag in the, you know, the film program or, or on an online write-up or whatever mm-hmm. and see little else about it, um, then we come into it and make certain assumptions about, I guess you could call it the narrative <laughs> that's in, in front of us and how we're supposed to feel about it. I mean, even but then in that rug pull. Yeah. Even in fiction, you pull rugs and you, ch- you surprise, surprise is one of the things that you can use. It's not the only thing you could use, but so you always have to think about like, what are you accomplishing? Where was the person? Where was the viewer before you pulled the rug? Where is the viewer after did you do them any good? Did, does the thing seem like nonsense in retrospect? Or does it have a different meaning in retrospect? These are all questions that apply to all these situations. I mean, and this reveals some of my own biases, as a, I think, as an artist. But I, I really try to think, whenever I'm doubting what I'm making, I try to bring everything back to the idea of an arc. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a narrative arc, but it's just the sense mm-hmm. that what the film is, is traveling from one point to the other. And there's an intentionality behind that travel. And if I pull a rug, as you say, Mm -hmm. then there should be a logic behind the point, the destination point relative to the origin point. And And the trajectory along the way should still feel as though 
if not, it's it's the logical precursor to that rug pull. Mm -hmm. It should feel as though it's in meaningful conversation with that rug pull and that everything that came before it and the rug pull itself bring you to that destination that forms the arc. There's no, a little bit, I don't no, know, maybe this is a bit no. double domey. <laughs> as, no, as you, as you talk about it, you, you give the subject a formal slant and you're talking about the rug pull and you're talking about everything as something with a structure, that with an arc is the word you use. And when I was talking about it, I was really phrasing it, I was shifting the focus to the reactions that the spectator is having because one did these things and feeling as if what, you know, when I was talking about it, I was talking from the perspective of of giving someone an experience, a complicated shaped experience, and when it's over, will they be, can they be legitimately upset that you gave them this experience? Have you done something for them, even if they are upset about it? So it's a, it's a shift of, of perspective. But I, I do very often wind up thinking about film and its value in terms of what you can reasonably uh, uh, you know, attribute to the film in terms of what it wants to do to the person with the person watching the film. I'm, I, don't know, I would argue that's a, a distinction of um, syntax rather than semantics. Could be. I, think, I think we're ultimately maybe discussing the same thing because I think if you're talking about what you're doing to a person with the film, you're still following. I, to me, that still follows. This might just reveal like structural biases I have again. No, no. But to me, that's Structure's not incommensurate. Structure is definitely in there no matter you know, how much you want to look at it in terms of like the relationship between the film makers and the, and the spectator. But I do find myself falling back on that a lot. And if I was like going to talk about that film Dade Town that I just mentioned and whether or not that worked for me or not, I would have to say, you know, what did you get? What did I get out of following you? That would be where I would try to locate value. I think this does. I mean, I think that question of what did I get out of this basically <laughs> does kind of get to that. The central issue with pranksterism, and I say that as a prank, <laughs> um, because uh, to me, I, nothing makes me appreciate a film less than I feel like if the filmmakers essentially reasserting their dominance over me intellectually or something, you know, where it's like, look how much, <laughs> aren't you impressed by how much we fooled you? There are power relationships. For sure, I I see power relationships everywhere, and I definitely see them in the in the relationship between the filmmakers and the audience. Well, just the very fact that you can withhold information, mm -hmm. and I actually think fourteen has a really great example of of uh, of, of withholding of, of that information, which is the um, is the first conversation between um, the main character and her daughter, mom and the little girl. Because through everything leading up to the film, me and uh, especially Manya, we were like we were just like you know going. Why, why? Why is this main character? You know, um, why, why is she not like just dropping Joe like a hot potato? There, it's a toxic friendship. You know, you, but then this so recontextualizes that because um, you know, as soon as she finished her story about the fact that Joe stood up to bullies when she was very young, it makes it all so completely understandable. And the fact that that wasn't revealed to us before. If it had been revealed to us in the first five minutes or something, there would be no tension to the film in that sense, right? You know, and but doing this creates this tension of what we don't know, uh, informing our own inner turmoil as we watch it, which I thought was a, the opposite of that, right? That that's me going, okay, I see why this has been withheld, and it's been a better experience for it. 
it actually, the film kind of started with that ending. I mean, I had like vague ideas about it, but when I got that idea of the story about Joe and then the child re- realizing it at the funeral that he, that the heroine of her childhood story died, that was when I said, this is a movie. And I think the same day or the next day, it was my birthday party and Pally came and I said, we got this movie here's what it is. And I told her what the story was. I mean, I, I told her that I was you know, writing it for her. If it feels like backwards, it's kind of big, maybe because it was conceived backwards, and then I just had to protect it. I think as I get older, I, I I more and more enjoy. This was not my reaction to fourteen, which I just think is an entertaining movie throughout. <laughs> but I I enjoy more and more watching movies, and it's made me a more patient viewer. Where I'm watching it, and I spend the first hour or hour and a half out of the movie. And then, you know, having that, what the fuck is that bullshit response? And then, uh-huh. and then something and then in the final act or th- third or whatever of the film, um, everything beforehand is suddenly recontextualized. It's really interesting. I don't know why I, I but more and more, I, I mean, like, it's, it's nice to have like upfront involvement in movies and that's most genre cinema. And I, I love that. But I don't know what it is about <laughs> about having that withheld until the last possible minute that really satisfies me. It's kind of rare to be able to get that like transformational thing. I can't think of too many movies offhand where I'm like sitting there saying, "Okay, what's the point? What's the point?" And then at the end, oh, one of them is Fat Girl by Brayat. That occurs to me. Uh, that's a film. Hey. Where the first time I watch that, it's like, okay, okay, what's happening? But at the end, you don't wonder anymore. Might partially be you being a sharper viewer than me and me just not getting movies until the, <laughs> until the ending comes on. Uh, I only really, I, my second viewing of any film is the story viewing. My first viewing is always the sensory viewing nowadays. And I think that's probably a shortcoming. And no. I often find I just straight miss key story beats until my second viewing. So um, sometimes I'll go, did we not know this? Like I even had the reaction this time of like, did I just was I not paying attention? It's really a question of what, what's lighting. most important to you. Like I don't like story is not finally what is going to make me like a movie. At least for me, it's not. So if you just focus on something else the first time, that kind of makes sense to me in a way. You know, I might be focusing on the director's personality on on as it's being expressed, and then the second viewing might be the time to say, "All right, I'm committed to this person now." let's see how good this really was or how is it just good or is it specially good yeah you make it sound like the first viewing is like the job interview for watching the movie and it's kind of it's kind of watch the movie to me like i i i, I still identify as an, a tourist uh, you know after all these years and i <laughs> i still feel that the relationship with the filmmaker whoever you might identify that to be is kind of what it's about in a sense I have that relationship with the filmmaker and they make all kinds of mistakes or do all kinds of things wrong, but I have a a commitment to them and an appreciation of them and an understanding of them. That's so much better than if I understand the whole thing from beginning to end and never formed that relationship, that, that sense of the person. The tricky thing about movies is there isn't more than one person making the movie, but that's the, you could call that an insight rather than an inconsistency to use Saris's phrase. I think uh, I like that reading of it because it, it leaves open a special 
space in my heart that I have for even bad movies because um, I, I love it when I can watch an unsuccessful movie that reveals a lot about its maker and therefore gives me the same satisfaction I get from watching a good movie. Absolutely. I, and I don't like, if I really feel the person and I vibe, if I, even if I, if I have an appreciation of the person either formed it during that viewing or had conceived it before that movie, um, I'm going to feel that time to some extent as spending time with that person, getting to know their personality if it fails, I'm not going to feel cheated or anything. I'm, I've wished for something different, but I I feel definitely that that's like, you know, a big part of it. It's tricky with movies because it's not like a you know a painting or something where there's no doubt mm. who did what. But that's if it were easy, everybody would do it. I mean, that's the tourist dilemma. I mean, this is why I genuinely, without any irony. This is why I think Ed Wood movies are good. <laughs> oh, a lot of people, have, I've heard that without irony more than once. I, I don't have an opinion myself. But. It's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a slowly growing sentiment to, to view, I think, quote unquote, good, bad movies as just as good movies. Well, you, well, you, you coined the phrase anti-masterpiece, which no, I think you is coined that one. You coined <laughs> it. I just, I just picked up on it. I just hijacked it. You just defined it. You defined <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, the idea of the anti-masterpiece is a film that is, is a masterpiece through no fault of the creator. Um, <laughs> so examples are like basically any Ed Wood movie or, um, or the treasure planet, uh, the Bulgarian one or, uh, the room, the mm-hmm. Wiseau film. And like, all those films are, I think, wonderful cinema but not for the reasons that the creators intended. Mastery was not a factor. Yeah. But, but does the mastery may not be a factor, but does the wondrousness uh, attach to the filmmaker, one of the filmmakers in any way, or was it accidental? Yeah, that, that's the thing, right? Like to take the most famous example, which is probably The Room, to me, what frustrates me about people's reactions to that is that it's almost like, haha, let's laugh at this person versus here's a really fascinating personality who is putting themselves on screen in a really naked way uh, and they're making themselves vulnerable um, and I don't think Wiseau's, I, I don't really stand by him as a person, but I think the fact that he put him, himself on screen in such a vulnerable way where you feel like at the end of the film, you know the man. That to me is very special. It's interesting. Um, so I would say those two things are almost impossible to, to pull apart. Almost. When I was young in Los Angeles, there was a movie that came out, I think it was in 81, called Fear No Evil by a guy named Frank Lalogia. It was a, a very cheap kind of horror film. And I went to it because it, the Herald Examiner had something called Cinema Score back then, and almost every film got like a B minus at worst, or right. like, and this they one, still do, yeah. <laughs> and this film got a D plus, and I thought this is such an outlier. There has to be something about this movie, and I actually liked the film oh. when I saw it. It was not like a you know incompetent movie. It was kind of crazy, and I guess I could, uh, I guess I maybe could guess why some people thought it was really bad but i saw it with a grindhouse audience the kind of audience that talks out loud through the movie i don't know if this doesn't exist anymore i don't think it's around oh, we, we actually way, have a yeah. cinema like that yeah. in vancouver basically maybe yeah. well this was like you know people with no money to get c- coming in out of the rain or something but this this grindhouse audience was working with this movie and you could hear these like people explaining to each other, like, and they were around cinephiles. I was saying, yeah, like they're like talking to each other while the movie's going on. They didn't reject the movie the way that the cinema score viewers did. Let me Wikipedia him. And then, and then oh, I, he was an he was an actor in um, the Wizard of Speed and Time. He oh, played really? American Thug. 
<laughs> so, oh, and that's a film formally favorite around here. Yeah, you're coming back yeah. for our Lelogia episode, I assume. Dave. Yeah, <laughs> I met the, I met the guy at the time because he like I wrote yeah. something. I was a critic, I think. And I must have written something about it, and you saw it and appreciated it. And uh, he was definitely yeah. He was not like somebody like where you have to make apologies for him. He was ambitious and. I don't know. I can't remember anymore whether there were any rough edges, but you know, he was, he was just somebody who, for whatever reason, his ambition translated into a really bad cinema score rating. I'd love to discuss the cinematography and the implications that shooting schedule had on, on 14, because I'm so fascinated by that. J- just so I can make sure I get everything right. Um, Christopher Messina shot the whole thing. Shot the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, that's really, I mean, even just that keeping the crew together, you know, it was, all that. it was, that was like something I thought of really early because previous to this, I'd made two, three movies with uh, my friend Duray Munashim, who lives in Toronto, uh, lived in Montreal when I met him. And it was, as I've been planning this movie, I was like getting really scared of having a- any out of town dependencies. And so I was like definitely looking for to try to have the crew like close to home preferably like you know permanently unemployed or have independently wealthy so they could just be like sitting around available at all times but it didn't work <laughs> the didn't... idle rich we love the idle rich around here it didn't work out that way in any sense i wound up casting like really important people who lived out of town and didn't even know i mean everything all all those plans went astray and how did that work in terms of figuring out the visual language of the film did the extended shooting schedule impact that much like for example one thing i was thinking in my head was like good grief gear rentals for a shoot like this would be annoying but i'd probably just you know if i were the cinematographer i'd probably just light it all with practicals or whatever we just like counted on spending a little bit more on stuff like that it was all planned you know and i i'm one of these people that doesn't try to find a visual style to match a subject i just feel as if the visual style is a response and you know, so I, mm. I, I storyboarded it all ahead of time, which, um, you know, I always do. And the shots are mostly pretty simple, but, you know, I tend to, but they tend to be like people centric so that either they're still or they're like a tracking shot that keeps the person in their place or whatever. There's that one shot of, um, or I guess it cuts back a few times. I forget his name, but one of Joe's uh, soon to be exes yeah. uh, walking down the street and it's panicked phone call. Yeah, yeah. It felt like a static shot because it's just a yeah. close up framed. It's just the world happens to be moving. Behind yeah. Him. And that, I, I do see it that way. I mean, obviously, technically, it's much more difficult. But the principle is the same. If you're trying to keep somebody the same size in a frame and they're moving and the camera's moving, it's kind of, it's not cheating to call it a tracking shot, but it partakes of the same, it partakes of the same spirit. Like um, the camera is not moving relative to your subject in that case. Exactly. No, it's not commentative. You're just trying to like keep them framed up. (laughs) It's not like they're on a bench or anything. Yeah, yeah, right. No, it's not. (laughs) It's an intentional choice to have them moving around. Yeah, it's for sure. But people move, you know, there's like a psychological component to the way that you put a script together. And then there's a way of shooting things. Even just textually, him not moving would not make sense in it that makes moment. No sense. Right? He's, he has to move. Yeah. But given that he has to move, given that he just had a knife waved in his face and he's scared <laughs> shitless, given that, the shot doesn't isn't all that different from a shot of him sitting on a bench if he were in the state of mind to sit on a bench. From from what I'm gathering here, you kind of see the visuals of the film less as like maybe like a self-conscious arc. Because I'm 
I'm kind of like an arc-er where I'll like think of, okay, what's how does the end of the film look? How does the beginning of the film uh-huh. look? How can I bridge the thing? You know, it's like I get out the, the conspiracy wall. It seems that you kind of design it as more like a response to each individual moment. No, no. Arc, arc, arc is furthest, <laughs> furthest from my mind. I, I always try to think of the visuals, sound as being a kind of helpless response to reality. I try to think of it as like, okay, here's the situation. How do I respond to the situation in the simplest, most direct way possible? That's really the way I approach it. So I can't afford to do any arcing stuff with that. It's like it belongs to a kind of a discourse in my mind that has to do with a state of being of the film rather than an evolution of the film. I mean, the film does have drama, it has structure, but that's on a different, on a script level. And I don't try to embody that in, in the visuals. I feel like it's... Except, ex- I guess, in the way that you can't help, because if, if you're embodying the arc of the script, you're, you're arcing the visuals, but almost yeah. in a more organic way, I guess. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I try to respond in every case. It's true that if you have a scene, like if Joe's breakdown happens in the seventh act stage of the movie, you're not going to film that the same way as you're going to film a shot of her, like not having any emotions. So you, but you're responding to the situation. And when the drama changes, you're responding to it. But I do think of the way that I'm filming it as being separate, independent of the drama of the film. It's partaking of something else of a kind of a, a, a directoral or a writer's foreknowledge it's just kind of follow the Romarian thing and try to just do justice to the reality as simply as possible. There's kind of like a dialectic between uh, your, your, your shooting choices and the trajectory of the material or, or of the character's behavior itself. For sure. You don't want it to be a contradictory behavior necessarily. Like, for instance, I knew all along that in the seventh movement of these nine movements, Joe was going to fall apart and sit on the floor and spill her guts. Um, and because I knew that, I knew it was going to be a, a relatively close shot. It would never occur to me not to, to do that in an extreme, in a long shot or anything. So there's a certain dramatic interaction between the size of the frame and what's going on. But on the other hand, it never occurs to me, um, how can I visually enhance or illustrate this? To me, I, I feel like a certain passivity in the selection of the frame and the, and the, and the you know, composition is an appropriate response to a lot of things. I'm not, nothing against the filmmakers who choose to be commentative with their style. Oh, totally. But I don't. Uh, the lighting in the film, um, I, I noticed that depending on the scene, uh, sometimes the lighting would feel completely naturalistic and almost like unadulterated, right? You know, like I feel like, oh, there's a window behind the camera, so this makes sense. Other scenes almost feel a bit like just slightly, it's all within the naturalism fold, but some scenes feel maybe a little more deliberate or it could just be that's where the practicals happen to be. Um, What was the process for deciding all that? It's pretty rare that I would ask for some kind of lighting or some that would be uh, commentative, be outside the, the flow of it. I always like, you know, ask my cinematographers to like have a certain simplicity. I sometimes like show the Nestor Almendros movies, you know, and leave it mm-hmm. at that. Duraid and Chris, neither one of them ever, you know, rebelled too hard against that. But they they care about, you know, where the light is supposed to be coming from. Sometimes that, you know, and they try to assemble the kind of image I want, which is not announce itself too dramatically. 
and they but they bring in the the concern for like where the light is supposed to be coming from all all certain as I've ever worked with have cared about that yeah <laughs> well it's 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 a problem that they solve with taking my feelings into account yeah I find um that's always an interesting dance because um I'm always as a cinematographer, um, I, I try and be as non-interventionist as possible in just about everything where it's, it's like, what's the least I can do to enact this idea. And I was, I was really taken by so many frames in this film where you'd have a character in the foreground lit by a blue computer screen. It happens a lot in this film because there's a lot of computer mm-hmm. operation and, you know, and then the background would have this nice practical, I'm thinking of there's this one scene early on with Mara on her laptop in her bed. Oh, yeah. And then there's this wonderful orange fill behind her and oh. it's, it's all motivated by a practical, but I, I could feel the extension of it really filling the room. And um, mm-hmm. and uh, I just really enjoyed the way it layered the frame and also the way I, the computer uh, made, rendered everyone who operated them very ghostly. Um, and I know that there was probably not even something spoken of on set. but It wasn't. It, it was totally something that Chris worked out for himself. But he, I, I mean, I think I understand what he was doing, but it's true. He never talked to me about it. He had he he had these two light sources, the the, the laptop and the the lamp in the room. You know he deployed them with regard to each other and with regard to each other's color temperature. But I, I think that's like you know that's not the way I think. I'm not a cinematographer, but I think I could tell like that he and also Duran and every cinematographer I ever worked with had this kind of accountability. They didn't want to just go crazy they they wanted to start with something very solid in my experience i don't know i should ask you since you have done it but i never worked with a cinematographer that didn't want to be accountable to the reality of the situation Uh, an evolution i see in a lot of cinematographers and i really in retrospect see this in myself the best kind of lesson i ever learned or the i think the most important skill i ever learned was not to impose my own visual language on a film but to try and translate the director's visual language into into visuals and that can mean i think meeting the director not even halfway but just emulating the director's way of seeing reality because everyone has their own way like um, there's definitely directors who have just watched so much dang hollywood cinema in the age Mm -hmm. of like brute arc lights where all they see is uh, you know all they want is a 10k in front of the actor's eyes and that's how Mm -hmm. they see the world that's okay but then you know you have other like directors like yourself who are ostensibly based in almost a reality that is that it somewhat resembles our own, <laughs> uh, at least at least on the surface. There can be like a two K bouncing off the ceiling, but it ha- still has to follow the rules of that little lamp behind the character. A lot of my uh, more than one film, I've talked to my cinematographers beforehand and said, you know, I do kind of like this one thing that happens a lot, like in Almendros, is films where where he purposely lets something burn out a little bit or go too dark based on circumstances. He like tries to like, he lets it be a little bit technically imperfect um, as a response to the situation. I said, I find this really effective if that, that means anything to you. I'm not a hundred percent sure that it has ever actually come to be, but once in a once in a while I will say like, Oh, this looks really good right now. And, And like, try to get them to stop lighting. But I don't think it's not, I'm not sure if I've had too much luck thus far in my career, um, getting, getting many people to sign on to this agenda of allowing the limitations of exposure and the limitations of the camera to be, to be expressive. 
that can that's such an interesting and will i know you have a lot to say on this too but i'm, I'm going to quickly interject like um <laughs> because that is such a one of my favorite subjects in filmmaking is the limits of your medium and um because for me at this point like if someone were to ask me to blow out a window i'm not going to blow out that window i'm going to I'm going to have all the information and then make it look like it's blown out by infinitely rolling it off to the highlights mm-hmm. of post because I'm a colorist and I think that way. To me, like the filmmakers I maybe respect the most image textual wise are the people like, you know, early digital Soderbergh or Agnes Varda, people who take these lo-fi or Anthony Dodd Mantle, people who take these incredibly lo-fi formats and then just go, okay, that's that's the box we're playing in. And we're going to run with these and try and make these expressive. And Or like something happens, something happens to an image and the natural... The natural tendency of the person taking care of the image is to correct for it so the image doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And it's a very natural thing and it doesn't hurt the movie at all. But once in a while, when that doesn't happen and the correction doesn't get made, the shift in the light quality is expressive, even though it's mm-hmm. not, you know, by the book. Um, and I think Almendras was like really kind of the master of that. But another film, which I don't think I'm interested in to do with it, that uh, shows that a lot is this film by um, by Jacques Rosier, where they shot on a on an island, and and uh, he he whoever was shooting that film just didn't care when the sun started to set, faces would get red. Uh, it's beautiful. It was really beautiful. There's a certain kind of there's a certain kind of where you approach the limits of exposure and 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 the image is decipherable but changed by circumstances that are within the movie. That can be very beautiful. And a lot of the moments where I really respond hard to cinematography are is when everything isn't quite perfect and where you, you, you you're not quite stopped to the right place. You know, or you haven't quite balanced the color. Were there any moments in fourteen where you're like, no, let's leave this quote-unquote i'm making air quotes everyone imperfection you know in i haven't i can't think of anything like that uh i only times i could think of in any of my movies were like moments where i just cut i sowed the seeds of confusion by like seeing a half-lit set and saying oh this looks really great let's like to leave it like this and that was not possible and so i just like made it worse i i think that that <laughs> it's the sort of thing that i i i don't i don't cherish the idea of trying to grab that power away from the cinematographer that's something that i think has to has to be part of a plan and and so you know i i i it wouldn't be me you know who would be the one to say you know just let this let this go let it blow out let it be dark let it go red let it go blue um even though those are some of my favorite moments but i i I don't I, i i maybe if i had more technical chops or something there's a decent number of moments in 14. I'm thinking of the funeral in particular, where there's a number of like fairly low exposures and, um, uh-huh. and, and those, uh, those fit to a T, it seems to me, what you're describing as far as changing the, I'll say the, like shifting the technical standards in order to uh-huh. get something expressive out it's, of the image. It, that's like a big room. It was a real funeral parlor. It was, you know, so it's really always a help to the sort of thing I'm talking about when you have to wrestle with real distances, real, you know, problems. Um, sometimes that the, the, the obstacles that throws in your way can create the kind of thing that I, that I like. But I, I don't think, I can't remember too many times where I didn't make a fool of myself by like stepping in mm-hmm. the middle of the lighting and saying, what about this? What about that? I think I usually leave it to them finally. But your job is to make a fool of yourself until it works. 
as a director. Uh, you know, you, 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 if you, if you can do that, if you like have like semi command of what you're doing, but if you don't have any <laughs> command of what you're doing, yeah. you're just screwing up the schedule. You're screwing. No, with, I, I agree. I you're do. screwing with somebody who wants to, has their own way of expressing themselves. So, you know, finding that. Yeah. Like I, I think a lot of, um, a lot of filmmakers just starting out have this idea of film as like an extension of their own psyche. Mm-hmm. It's like, like, this is my will. I'm going to make it in the film. When in fact, it's translated through all these intermediaries and those intermediaries are your crew and, it, and collaborate. And it fits. And this kind of vision fits with the kind of Bazinian idea that it doesn't, it's not something that comes whole out of your head. You're documenting something. Even if you've made up a story, mm-hmm. you're documenting a lot of things. You're documenting people. Acting is a lot of there's a lot of documentation involved in acting, and photography is documentation. And even like a lot of the filmmakers people go to as the go to examples of control freak filmmakers were deeply indebted to that kind of documentation of serendipity, right? Where um, I just went on Orson Welles bender, so he's the one <laughs> I'm thinking of. But Citizen Kane, I always had this impression of it as a film that was planned to a T, right? Mm-hmm. Like they had that down. No, it was just, it was a, it was a mix of that and a constant, constant, just chaotic stream of invention from Wells and Toland mm-hmm. and, and just the chaos of its massively chaotic central creator. Um, and um, Wells is like your classic filmmaker personality who I wish I could have the personality of, but instead I'm stuck with this kind of obsessive compulsive an- anxious personality that needs to compensate. But people like <laughs> Wells, are the ones that really enjoy filmmaking. They actually have a good time on the set. Everybody else might well, not. Unless have, you're making the Magnificent Ambersons. <laughs> everybody else might have a bad time. Yeah. Would, I would interject <laughs> that Wells had a good time making a film when he got to make a film. Yeah. I think that's a true. key distinction it's with true. that personality as well. It, if it goes too far, that's the case also. Half the time, I desperately feel horrible that I'm not Orson Welles, but then ha- thankful that I'm not Orson Welles, but holy God, that guy had a bad <laughs> When I. When I started working in tech, my, uh, for a while, one of my bosses was Stanton Kay, who was a filmmaker. He was like an American independent filmmaker who made a few pretty well-known independent films in the 60s and 70s. And he had this personality, and I never got to see him make a movie. But I got to, I was like working under him at times and saw him dealing with crises. And he was such a filmmaker, it just made me sick because it was so not like me. And he was like making everybody's life difficult. He didn't care but he was just loved being in the moment and taking reality as a challenge and taking crisis as a challenge. He would say, okay, there, go ask those people over there if that you can use that. There's some wire there. That doesn't belong to anybody. Go get that wire. You know, it, and it was like being in the wake of this was not always easy, but I was, while I was in the wake of it, I was thinking, such a filmmaker, such a filmmaker's personality. If only I could enjoy filmmaking the way that this person surely enjoys it. I, I'm glad you don't have that personality because if you didn't, and I'm, this is not just me being sentimental, we would not have 14 <laughs> if you had that personality. It's true, right? you know, it's like whatever you do, you do with what you can have. Everyone wants the other person's hairstyle, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, it'd be nice not to suffer through filmmaking, but whatever, yeah, you know, true. <laughs> man's got to know his limitations. Thank you, Dan, for joining us. Is, what's the best way to watch uh, 14 right now? Is it still playing digitally? It's still or? playing digitally. Not only still playing digitally, but much to my surprise, has more theaters than it has had at any other point. Oh. I think the best way to do it is to pick a theater that you would like to support 
go to their website that's showing it and go to their website. It'll all click through to the same place. It'll all click through to the distributor's site. But if you do it through the theater's website, the 50-50 split you know, goes between the distributor and the theater that you want to support. So that's, that's the best way to do it. Or if you know me, you could ask me for a link, but then nobody gets any support. Okay, so <laughs> folks, everyone get to know Dan we'll Salad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. That was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today. Paige Smith is our associate producer. And if you dug what you heard today, rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps other people discover our podcast. And subscribe while you're at it, of course. If you want to come on the show or if you've got an idea for a topic or if you want to ask a question about something, you can get in touch with us by email via filmformally at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at Film Formally. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. See you next time around, folks. <laughs> <laughs>